Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a three-week takeover of the Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. This series is centred on sexual relationships, abolition, sexual violence, power and feminism. These episodes feature Tina Seeker, Alison Phipps and Nikki godden Razul. All three episodes are centred on the new feminist framework based on Tina Seeker's book Sex, Consent and Justice, as well as Alison, Tina and Nikki's new collective titled Abolition Feminism for Ending Sexual Violence. This is a trigger warning to let you guys know that this episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people might find difficult to listen to. Welcome to the Surviving Society Alternative to Women's Hour. I'm Alison Phipps. I'm Professor of Sociology at Newcastle and I'm so excited to be hosting an episode of my favourite podcast, Surviving Society. I'm thrilled um, and I'm really excited to be interviewing my new colleague, Tina Sicker, about her brilliant book on sex consent and justice. Um, Tina, you've already done an episode with Chantal, um, so I will just introduce you as reader in Technoscience and Intersectional Justice at Newcastle, and I think we will jump straight in. So you talk with Chantal a little bit about consent in the book and the liberal model of consent and what some of the problems are with that, and I wanted to pick up on the theme of sex work um, and how sex work and the idea of transactional sex kind of complicates and helps our understanding of consent, really. Yeah, and and that was something that I had to work through when I was putting that model together because there was, of course, um, and I did a lot of, of research looking at you know, books and articles that had been written by sex workers that were talking about you know how they experience sex sort of in practice, and I thought that it would be really important that any model would have to have a carve out or a built into it the the idea that it doesn't have to be you know this perfect. Um, experience every time so that was one of the the principles but then also that sex work would have to be uh, incorporated into the model so leaving space for transactional sex and for everyday sex which you know sometimes will not meet the sort of ideals of of that model um, or you know sex for conceiving yeah so in your model I think does that really well because it's moving away from that idea of consent as being a yes or no. And as you point out, that is so compatible with carceral approaches, isn't it, to this model, which is really more about care for the other, isn't it? Um, And I was really interested by that. I mean, it's obviously the right way to go about it, but there are some pitfalls, aren't there, with that model? I mean, I was thinking about how care for the other can be gendered, it could also be potentially raced as well. So who who has to care and who doesn't necessarily have to care so much. So I wonder if you, we could think about that a little bit as well together. Yeah, and, and there's a, yeah this heteronormativity that's built into it. Uh, also, 
Um, and, and that's been a critique of care ethics and feminist care ethics as, as well, sort of reifying mm -hmm. the, the gender binary um, that can be problematic. When I'm putting together, you know, thinking back and putting together the model, that, that care would have to be, you know, very much along the lines of, of making gender much more expansive and trying to really query and trouble the gendered nature of care mm. and thinking through care. One of the things I wish I could have had more space to do was sort of look at care and labor and sort of the literature in that area. But I think, uh, you know, really trying to be specific about what care is supposed to mean is sort of, you know, in the way like Levinas sort of talks about care in the face of the other and, um, and, and then that work. Uh, and feminist care ethics, mm. um, but but really trying to ensure that a lot of the assumptions around care that we have that can be gendered and racialized particularly have to be challenged. Yeah, and we need it, don't we? Because we need care. I mean, yeah. I always come back to that when people say to me, what do we do? Yeah. You know, what's the answer? I always come back to care, even though it's so problematic yeah. It's, you know, it can be violence, can't it? Care can be violence when it's compelled or extracted, but at the same time, it's what we need. Yeah, and, and it can also be problematic in the way that, you know, mutual care can uh, occur where it becomes um, a way for the state to not do the basic services that it needs to do for its population. Yes. Um, and that's where, like, yeah, mutual care and networks of care, particularly with, with COVID, were fantastic. Um, and I think they have to be fostered, but it, it can't be a way for the state to absolve itself of its responsibilities to communities. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one of the other things I really like about your model and loved about your book is that you're very open about the fact that sex is not ever an equal act between two completely equal people you know sex often occurs in a context of inequality um, that needs to be negotiated and it's how we negotiate that it's not about kind of imagining some level playing field that isn't necessarily there um, I wonder if you could kind of speak a little bit about that and then I want to ask you something more specific yeah and and I I really think that that is a important kind of takeaway of the book that um you have to, and this really speaks also to my shared interest, you know, my work on science, because it's like looking at the assumptions that are built into our understandings of how something happens. And so, you know, what are the values that are, are, are in there? And so sort of looking at, we think that, you know, consent is sort of yes, no, this idea that we are entering into the situation on an equal playing field and our yes or no is sort of in a vacuum. Right. And, and so the consent model assumes that and then that that distortion, because it's not taking into consideration all the power dynamics, the differentials, the hierarchies, it then seeps into the legal system. And then that is what is assumed. You know, that's where questions, why didn't you just leave come from? Because it is this assumption that we are on a level playing field. And and then you really have to consider where things come from. So like power differentials around gender, around race, around class, around celebrity, you know, in a lot of cases as well, that um, 
that we have to look at those structures when we're thinking about consent. And it doesn't have that in the model at all. Yeah. No, and even just power relations between individual people. And yeah. power is erotic, isn't it? It's, it's an erotic thing. And to think that we can not incorporate that in our understandings of sex is, is a mistake, isn't it? Um, I wanted to ask you uh, quite a difficult question. Um, we're going to go there now. So are there any relations of inequality that you think should exclude sex from taking place? And I'm thinking here about all of the discourse around students and lecturers in higher yeah. education, especially. Yeah. So, so there is, I mean, in, in the first question, looking at relationships where it's just should not be allowed would be something like doctor patient. I think that, you know, that, that there is a problem in, in, in those dynamics. Um, it's really a struggle when it comes to, um, you know, professors and, and, and students or teachers and students on higher ed, I'm talking about specifically. Um, I think that, you know, there are cases in which a professor who dates a grad student from a different department you know, that, but, but usually it's fine. But I, I do know that there are, you know, cases in which a professor and their grad student have gotten married and, and in some cases are doing fine. And if you went to the woman, it's usually a woman, who is younger and was the student, they would be, you know, uh, affronted by any suggestion that they had entered into that relationship under coercion. Um, and so I think that there is a sense that these cases have to be thought of on an individual level and that agency has to be thought of as very complicated. And the power dynamics of individual cases is very um, complicated as well. I think when it comes to the professor and, and the student you know, if there is a reliance on the professor for funding, for, for progression, that can be very problematic um, if there's a, a sexual relationship as well. Um, but I think that there has to be a more complicated answer to either banning it or, or not. But there has to be, you know, um, a way to sort of make that known to, you know, relevant um people in administration, even though I don't like that idea either, uh, disclosure and the administration having that kind of power. But, um, but I think that, that incorporating the kind of sexual ethics that I'm thinking about in those cases is, is important. So it's not like a perfect answer, <laughs> but it's sort of that, that idea that, um, that it's more complicated than, oh my gosh, you know, we have to just have like a, a round policy that there's no yeah. And I was so relieved when I read your book, actually, because I have been working in this space for a long time with the student um, sexual violence against students. And it feels to me as though we need more nuance around this. It feels to me as though we have got to a place where we are defining some kinds of relationships, particularly age gap relationships as inherently abusive and inherently exploitative. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I have a personal investment in that. I was in a, an age gap relationship for, you know, for a long time. My, my partner, she was 16 years older than me. And I would strongly um, oppose any suggestion that 
that relationship was an abusive one. It absolutely wasn't. Yeah, um, I when that was 12. Yes. But I was sort of younger, so I was like 22. Yeah. And then 34. So th- there was a, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it does feel as though we need a little bit more nuance. It feels as though we are kind of infantilizing young people too much sometimes in sort of saying, in this in this situation, you can't consent. You know, if your partner is this much older than you, you can't consent to be in a relationship with, with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have seen that written and said um, in in this field before. Yeah, and and the the idea of, of decision making and what factors go into who you decide to partner with are, is more complicated. Uh, and I think that the agency is sort of dispersed and. Um, that, that yeah you can't foreclose that option to people because because there is that um, that idea that that you know it is curtailing their autonomy mm-hmm. yeah and I like your model there because maybe there is you know maybe if we were to think about it in different ways away from the kind of consent because I think consent can very easily develop a kind of false consciousness perspective and I don't quite know why mm-hmm. um, but it's it seems to me that that can happen whereas in your model it feels it just a little bit less um, pronounced, pronounced. Yeah. yeah and it's super gendered mm. um, um, this idea of like infantilizing um, the woman in particular if, if it's in that in that dynamic that that they are just not able to consent they don't know what they're doing when they go to get an abortion Mm -hmm. they don't you know and that that happens along like across the board and so you see that discourse sort of embedding itself into the um about about who you have a relationship with as well yeah and it's the Catherine mckinnon argument isn't it that women cannot meaningfully consent ever (laughs) in patriarchy um it just makes me feel really really uncomfortable um, and of course, that very much intersects with what we were talking about about sex work, yeah. doesn't it? Um, so I want to ask you a little bit more about kind of the concept of sexual violence in your work, because you mentioned in the book the debates amongst feminists about whether rape is about sex or whether it's about power mm-hmm. or whether it's about both. Um, and I wonder if maybe we could kind of go through some of those. Um, and maybe explain some of those debates, and then you could say where you stand on that. I don't know where I stand on yeah, it. So yeah, and and I I don't know. Like you know, in in my case as well, the the idea that yeah that rape is specifically about uh, power and the assertion of power and gendered power and masculine power in particular, and that really fits well in sort of a second wave uh, feminist framework. Um, but then you know, in in more recent iterations of you know approaches to rape that it is about sex because it is about sex like like that there is this element of of sex that that needs to be built into an understanding of rape and why it happens and uh, how pleasure fits into that Um, and so saying that rape is just about power is problematic because then it takes away from where sex fits into it and how complicated sex is um, and I think that's a way to, it's a way to think about rape in a, in very clearly circumscribed ways, sort of neat and clean that way. 
it's uh, easier, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why it was legally quite successful, yeah. wasn't it, to conceptualise it as being about power? Yeah. Um, because you get rid of some of the mess. Yes, yes. And and so thinking about it and reintroducing sex into the equation, I think, makes things much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And then you start to get things around, like, oh, okay, then, you know, is, is it about, like, affirmative consent or enthusiastic consent or communicative consent or sexual integrity and you get all of these moves because it's been made clear that no sex is important to any understanding of, you know, any rape or anything else. And so we have to kind of bring that back in. But then it's sort of become more messy. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that but that's what I love about your book, because you're kind of happy to sit in that mess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I mean, intersectionality is messy, isn't it? Sex is messy, relationships are messy, um, and it's it's really helpful to have your book as a kind of guide through some of the mess, um, you know. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but but yeah, that idea that it, it doesn't tie up ni- nicely, and that's fine. Mm. And that's fine, exactly, and I think we need more writing about sexual violence that doesn't tie up nicely, and we don't like that, do we? Because sexual violence is so traumatic, it's so painful, we want answers, you know, we want a clear bad guy we want a clear victim you know it's very difficult actually to well I know from experience to speak with any nuance about sexual violence because you open yourself up to accusations of traveling with the backlash you know Um, are you worried about that yeah I mean I haven't had too much backlash but I know that is a possibility like usually there'll be critiques or like a DM, and then I'll just delete it. Um, you know that 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 often happens, um, and so there hasn't been, you know, anything problematic. But I know from experience and experience of colleagues, um, where things can become quite, um, you know, pronounced and sort of the the violence uh, that can happen online and uh, the symbolic violence, and then also the threats. And you've experienced that yourself. And and so, you know, that is something that I worry about. But I think, um, you know, uh, figuring out how to deal with that in terms of, you know, engaging with public scholarship is is something that, you know, I, I feel I'm in a place where I can handle some of that. Mm. Yeah. I am here for you <laughs> as well. I've been there before. Um, and we need voices like yours. We need people to be breaking this down and, you know, and saying, and I think also as academics, we do have the privilege of being able to say certain things that other people, maybe people who work for rape crisis centres, for example, can't say. Um, so I think it's it's such useful work. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, just moving towards kind of not what do we do I'm not going to ask you what to do but in order to achieve this ethic this sexual ethic that you talk about and you've talked with Chantal about how it's kind of embedded in all these structures isn't it what kinds of change would we need to see systemic structural cultural change yeah I would start at at the cultural I would love to turn the uh, framework into like a toolkit so that it could be brought into schools or workplaces or you know other kinds of institutions you know as a way 
you know, to kind of include artistic practice into some of the education would be interesting. Um, so to to really find a way to make it a a pedagogical tool in the first instance, and then looking at you know concerted critiques of the legal system and you know doing campaigns for uh, and I don't like reform in particular because I'm an abolitionist, so it would really require an entire upending of the system. But I think that is important as well. Um, so you know the the, the toolkit in sort of adapted to different stages of the educational system. So like in elementary, high school, and higher ed, you know, I'd want it to be part of Frosh Weeks, you know, that, that that would be, you know, an interesting way to go forward. But having a kind of cultural change and having more discussions with academics and scholars in different disciplines to, you know, find ways to make this much more mainstream idea to operationalize it more. Yeah. I can see some really practical questions actually that could be asked on the basis of your model that could be turned into tools for educational purposes. Um, in terms of the legal question, do you think that our adversarial legal system could cope with a more nuanced understanding of consent? No. No. So <laughs> what, what do we do? Do we burn it down? What do we do? That's my, <laughs> that's what I would like to do is a take a burn it down approach. Um, but I think that, you know, it, it's hard to say, yes, I want to burn it down, but I guess we can just do some changes for now. Like that seems to be always where I end up that like, yes, I, I think it needs an entire up ending. It needs complete abolition. That's what we're working towards. But I think that it's like whether you do an entire upending or hoping to make these changes by concerted action that has to, in the system that we're in, occur through collective steps towards, you know, challenging the system. So, you know, attacking it from all ends where you've got um, people, in, you know, in higher ed, you've got activists, you've got artists, you've got lawyers, you've got, you know, scholars who are actively working to abolishing the system in in ways that they find possible and sort of like in a concerted attack approach is maybe <laughs> you know an option yeah i mean that's the difference isn't it i guess between the reformist and the non-reformist reforms yes. which for the listeners this is an abolitionist concept whereby reformist reforms are reforms that kind of prop up the system. So Angela Davis talks about how reform actually just legitimates the system because you're improving it, thereby kind of pre preserving and legitimating it, where non-reformist reforms are reforms which actually dismantle that system, even if it's in tiny, tiny ways. The problem is in practice, it's not always possible to know, is it, whether what you're doing is a reformist reform or a non-reformist yeah. one, and I think that's the question that a lot of us are now grappling with, isn't it? Um, you know, is there work that we can do within the legal system or is it just not possible, not worth it yeah. at all? Yeah. And that, that, that sense of, of deciding that it's not possible to do this action within the system, but to alleviate the harms that it's currently doing to 
people who are marginalized, we have to find ways to mitigate those harms mm -hmm. in the in the short term in order to make sure that we can protect the very people that we think are going to be needed to, mm -hmm. to make the larger changes. Yeah, and I think going back to what you said about kind of small steps as well, it's about everybody doing their own small part, isn't it? I think it's Mariam Carver that says that we, we all have to do our bit and the problem is that not enough of us are doing our bit. Yeah. So the labor all falls on a few people who are having to do a massive bit um, and then they get burned out and then they get frustrated. Um, whereas if we all did little bits, then we could have people over there supporting survivors. We could have people over there lobbying for, you know, against digital strip searches. We could have people over here doing transformative justice. It would look very different. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, restorative versus transformative justice, because um, in the book you call it restorative um, and I wondered if you could explain for the listeners what the difference is and what those yeah. two things are. Yeah, so I chose restorative, um, and that sometimes I use transformative if, if the, the person that I was citing was using it in that context. But transformative seems to be um, used much more to, uh, to characterize total societal change. So connecting the carceral with, you know, higher education, with, with government, with you know, the education system with social services. So it's an entire kind of abolition of institutions of harm. Whereas restorative justice is much more oriented specifically to the legal system and how we deal with harm in cases that would normally be taken up by the criminal justice system. So then, yeah. Yes, yeah, so the restorative bit is the bit between the victim and the perpetrator yeah. and the transformative bit is the whole yes. system. So restorative justice could be part of a transformative justice yes. agenda. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and you talk in the book a little bit about why restorative justice has been so difficult in relation to sexual crimes. I don't know whether you want to explain that. Yeah, because it, it is probably the most difficult case to get a skeptic to potentially consider um, because it is so intimate and it's so coded in violation and sort of harm that is sort of lifelong and, and that it is a violation of, of like someone's existence. Um, and so sexual violence, it's seen as only properly been dealt with if the person, the offender, is sort of locked away for a long period of time. Um, and not only is that very rarely happen, you know, the fact that, you know, the number of cases that are reported and that go through the system and then that go through the courts and then get a, you know, a finding, you've got like, you know, small, small percentages of that actually being the case. And then, uh, you know, research has shown that a lot of the survivors who are um, talked to afterwards about how the system went felt that they were put on trial, that they were sort of um, re-traumatized. And um, it's just not, they don't, they don't feel that they have, um, they have, their, their, experience has been addressed, that they haven't been able to articulate the harm, they haven't been able to <clears throat> say anything to the to the perpetrator or the accused, um, and that 
when you look at cases of restorative justice and the uh, survivors, <clears throat> excuse me, in that in those cases, they have been able to um, have more positive outcomes in the sense that they feel that they have been heard. They have been, um, you know, they are not, they are the ones being represented because they are not represented in the legal system. They are not the ones making the complaint. It's usually the crown or the, you know, the government or the state. Um, and that they are, they feel that there is some accountability, that they have power to construct that accountability. Mm-hmm. And there's different ways that things can go, or you know, it, that can happen in in these cases it doesn't have to be a face-to-face sit down kind Mm -hmm. of thing it can be you know letters it could be and and there's an incentive for the person to take responsibility and that taking of responsibility and that learning on the part of the accused is really important as well so there's also been research of okay like what do you want to do with the you know the people who have caused harm like what is in a larger sense, do we want these institutions of just despair, um, or or is there a way uh, to to find um, avenues for 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 restoration of, of relations just on a very basic human level? And abolition means nobody is disposable, right? You don't throw people away. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm glad you said. It doesn't have to just be face to face either, yeah. because I think that can be a misunderstanding of restorative justice. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's been co-opted often into models that kind of disempower survivors by forcing them to face yes. their perpetrators in both institutions and also the criminal punishment system. So I think that doesn't do us any favours either, does it? Yes. Yes, there's sort of a stereotype of what it has to look like, but there are multiple models mm. of, of how this can occur. And and the training of the uh, the moderator or, or the person who's doing, they have to be very much attuned to power dynamics to make sure that, you know, just like a psychiatrist would, would be able to be attuned to when they're being manipulated, mm. um, it would be the same sort of thing, yeah. yeah. And do you think that restorative justice could also be used for accountability, not just from perpetrators, but from the communities that enable them because it takes it takes a village to victimize somebody doesn't it Mm -hmm. yes and and that's why bringing in family and friends into the model into you know any kind of a restorative process can be you know positive but but they don't have to be if there is a sense that you know it is a a it's, it's a domestic issue and then there's part of the family who's just totally behind one of the parties mm. you know you can have more of a selective process you know there's there's different kinds of iterations of, of how a restorative process can occur you can have someone sit in for you you can include or exclude who you want you can yeah do like letters you can film you know discussions yeah mm. yeah well, I'm going to start wrapping up now, um, or I'll get told off by George. Um, <laughs> is there anything you want to say about what you want to do next? Where are you going next with this work? Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to work on the collective with with you and Nikki. Um, you know the events that we have coming up. I think you know trying to find a way to use this and operationalize it into a to- toolkit would be an ideal. And I'm thinking about you know another book that kind of incorporates political polarization and sexual consent a little bit more mm. but I don't know how much I want to wade into like the, the like 
extremist spaces of the internet to do that kind of research so we'll see what happens yeah. <laughs> oh exciting exciting stuff thank you so much tina um it's been such a pleasure and thanks for letting me host surviving society bye, bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to surviving society with Chantal and tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on twitter and instagram If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 